Welcome to Healthcare Unfiltered. It's your host, Shadi Nabhan, hematologist and medical oncologist, and I have interest in all aspects of healthcare delivery, treatment, leadership, mentorship, and policy. And today's podcast is about keto, diet, cholesterol, lipids, and some cardiac study. And, um, you know, I've had before um, Dave Feldman on this podcast, and he has been on a podcast with Dr. Ethan Weiss, cardiologist at UCSF, where they had a very, very, very heated debate about the high LDL that ensues from the ketogenic diet and whether patients with such phenotype should undergo actual pharmacological therapy. And the views diverged and the heated discussion went viral on my podcast and on the YouTube channel. But Dave sought to investigate his question by conducting a study that is continuing uh, to, uh, is still has not really been published. He is an engineer and he has has is very passionate about answering this question. So I've asked Dave to come back on Healthcare Unfiltered to tell us what's going on in his life and what's happening with the study that he wanted to conduct and if there are any updates that he is willing to share with us about this study. Folks, this is a podcast that you want to tell your friends and colleagues about. If you are into diet, if you are into understanding lipids, if you're into understanding the physiology of what we deal with and whether pharmacologic intervention is needed in certain situations or not. You need to keep an open mind as you listen to this podcast, but I appreciate Dave Skander and coming on Healthcare Unfiltered and always sharing these views. And I look forward to learning from you what you thought about this podcast. And to do so, you can always subscribe, rate, and write a brief review to the podcast. And don't forget to let your friends and colleagues know about it. You can check uh, the my website, shadinabhan.com. And while at it, check out uh, my book, Toxic Exposure, the true story behind the Monsanto trials and the search for justice. Don't forget to get your copy. I promise it's going to be a book that you will want to finish reading it from the beginning till the end. And uh, let me know how things are going by direct messaging me on Twitter at Chadi Nabhan or Instagram, Chadi underscore healthcare unfiltered. I welcome all comments, all ideas, and I will always return these comments uh, with answers. And if you're a loyal listener, ask me for the Healthcare Unfiltered podcast t-shirt, and I will gladly mail it to you, and it is free of charge. Without further ado, Dave Feldman on Healthcare Unfiltered. So we're going to get started by telling folks who you are and um, really what got you interested in all of this, like, you know, nutrition and diet ecosystem type of thing. My running joke is that it's fear. <laughs> what happened was I'd gone on a ketogenic diet in 2015. My cholesterol level shot through the roof. And I was trying to figure out why, because other members of my family had gone on the diet as well. Their cholesterol did not rise like mine did. And this led into an obsession that's now eight years running, where I've become obsessed with understanding lipidology in particular, and other dietary factors as it relates to metabolism. And of, and of course, what we're all interested in is this rise in lipids, especially LDL cholesterol. Is it going to associate with a likewise increase in the development of plaque in the arteries, atherosclerosis? That's, that's what got me here. 
But what's your, what's what's your background like before you before these eight years? I mean, what what do you do now? Like, what's your occupation? What's your job? Who is Dave Feldman? I mean, it, I guess at this point, you could say that I really am a researcher. It's 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 fascinating because I've gotten so used to just saying that I'm an engineer, and at heart, I feel like I'll always identify as an engineer. It's been really the vast majority of my life, uh, particularly in platform development with software, but. What got me into this area now has me, you know, we, we've got four published papers, including the Lib Energy model that details the very thing I was just mentioning to you. We have a study that's out of Lundquist right now on folks like myself who've seen their cholesterol levels rise. So while my background is in engineering and platform development, this is what I'm doing most of the time every day. Okay, so let's. I want to level set for listeners and for viewers. Hopefully, nobody is viewing this because the lighting where I am is terrible. I look like I'm jaundiced, but that's okay. But let's level set. What are the top three or four diets that people in general consume or try to adhere to that you've come across? And what are the goals of these diets? I mean, I'm familiar with intermittent fasting because I keep trying it and I always fail miserably. But what what, what have you come across? What are the diets that you, you can tell listeners about? Certainly what's occupying a lot of attention in the last several years is the diet that I've gone on is low carb. I do think that it's worth making a distinction. Low carb usually means under 120, under 100 grams of carbs a day. More recently, there's been a reference to keto. Keto is typically more defined by the a diet of such restriction of carbohydrates that you actually are in a state of nutritional ketosis. So you have detectable levels of ketones like beta hydroxybutyrate. That's an even lower carb, typically less than say uh, 20 or 30 carbs a day. So that's one ca that's one category is low carb. Another, of course, that you hear about all the time is plant-based diets. It's, I think, a little bit of a misnomer, and a lot of vegans would agree with me that you shouldn't necessarily call it a vegan diet, though vegan diets do tend to be animal-free. Vegan is more philosophy, but plant-based is probably the more appropriate way to say it. They tend to be higher carb. They tend to be more carb-centric, so it's not uncommon that on social media you see vegans and keto, people arguing back and forth in the area of nutrition because of uh, the distinctions between them. And then there's a third, which I would say you hear about a lot. It's, it's fascinating though, because I don't find that it has that many people that participate online, which is the Mediterranean diet. These three diets, I would say are the most prominent and common that I hear about. And it's also where we see a lot of the dietary research prop up is around, I mean, there's, there are other diets. I'm sure you've heard of some that are more, um, establishment friendly, such as dash diet, uh, but generally speaking, I would say those three have the greatest prominence right now. So what happened to intermittent fasting? I just told you about which, where does that fall? Well, technically it's not a diet per se. It's a kind of activity because technically you could be doing it on any diet, but I intermittent fasting is, I understand it is of course, having a span of time for which you will not be consuming food. There does seem to be some argument as to whether or not you can consume anything at all, such as coffee, or some people might do what's known as a fat fast. So they'll, in that period of time where they're supposed to be 
consuming nothing. They have just a very tiny category of things they could consume like fat or some other energy substrate to help them get through. But I mean, intermittent fasting can be done on any of the three diets I just mentioned. I see. And then Dave, we've heard about this back in the day, Atkins diet. Where does that fall? So Atkins, you could say was sort of the precursor to low carb and was even called low carb at the time. But if you look at how Atkins originally had it, I believe in his original book, and to be fair, I haven't read it, but as I understand it to be as it was a multi-stage thing, you actually did go super low carb initially, and then you could start reintroducing carbs at a, at a certain threshold. But I'll concede, I, I don't know it as well. It's just that it focused on taking out typical carb-rich things. You would have like a burger, but without the bun. Um, but it, its attraction was that you didn't have to count calories per se. You just had to focus on foods that were generally lower carb. So I'm assuming that each diet serves a particular purpose. In other words, if you use the low carb versus the plant-based versus keto versus Mediterranean, each one has a, a, a different goal that you set to achieve. Is that true or all of them are destined to achieve a specific goal? And, and what is that goal, if that's the case? I mean, I think generally speaking, all of these are competing on just the broader weight loss criterion. Uh, your, will this diet help me lose weight? Just given the commonality of obesity, that tends to be the primary judgment. Now, that said, I think I and many others would say, you know, weight loss is something that should be more just a side effect of health gain. You should be thinking more in terms of how do you regain your health? And if that part of that is going to be some degree of weight loss and gaining metabolic health, then that makes sense. But outside of that, why I'm interested in keto is because there's a lot of research for which it may be of special efficacy for certain folks. Of course, it came up around epilepsy. It was a diet for which could help many people uh, either alleviate in part their seizures or even uh, cease them altogether. It's now being used for other things like ulcerative colitis. It's There's a whole new crop of research that's coming up around mental health. And again, this isn't to say that keto is the one size fits all for everybody, but to your point, is there some purpose beyond say weight loss in the case of some of these diets? It may be a special use for a particular medical condition someone has. So I think we should, we're going to probably focus today on keto. I mean, I presume because this is really the area that you've spent a lot of time on. And, and, and there are a lot of questions about this, but, but I think the, the question that comes to mind is in determining how effective the diet intervention is to achieve a particular goal we are assuming that the person is not doing anything else that might confound the results. So for example, let's say I'm on a keto diet. How do I know if the keto diet is what's helping me or the exercise is actually helping me or the, you know, maybe a medication that's like, how do I know that, that the diet is indeed what's getting me where I want to be? Well, actually, it's it's great that you're saying this because this is why I don't comment that often in the diet space. <laughs> One of my issues is that there is such an incapability compared to what I think a lot of people believe 
for disentangling the diet from these other confounders like uh, not just exercise, but also environmental factors, which can be, you know, things like mold exposure. A lot of a lot of times people assume that it's diet related when it turns out to be that. However, that said, I do think a large proportion of those people who aren't focusing on diet will find a lot of benefit toward diet changes. But also to further get granular on the points that you're making, there can be different factors. It's not necessarily just consuming less. Sometimes there are nutrient deficiencies, which need some focus that people may not realize. Great example is vitamin D. As you kind of come into the space, even without learning that much on nutrition, you find pretty quickly that we have a major deficiency in vitamin D as a population. It's extremely common. And a lot of that's because we don't get as much sunshine. So there's a degree with which we can supplement against it. But in actuality, this is one of those things where diet can't fully replace just simply getting outside and getting more sunlight, which is of crucial importance as well. So let's, you know, step back on keto diet. How do you like, how do you monitor uh, that you're going to get into ketosis? A lot of people say they're on keto diet, but do they actually measure the ketones in the urine and they check whether they are getting to that state or is it just assumed if you adhere to a particular diet restriction? Unfortunately, I'm going to lean a little bit on my own family and friends. I think as keto has become more and more popular, I've certainly had a lot of challenge cases in my own family who say that they're on keto. And often it's like, oh, I've tried keto. It doesn't work. And I'll go with them through the foods that they're consuming. And often what they're taking is just being lower carb and or eating packaged foods that are labeled keto or keto friendly, that that is sufficient enough to assume that they're in keto. But ketosis is typically defined as being in a state for which there are detectable levels of ketone bodies in your blood. And the most prominent one that can be discovered with a blood test is beta-hydroxybutyrate. That's what a lot of people so go So you by. have to get your blood checked to see if that's detectable. Well, I, I'm going to say I think that that's a better test than just assuming. Some folks, for example, will use urine sticks, but there can be problems with that as well. That can uh, detect acetoacetate. But the, the problem is, is that that too can diminish as there's greater fat adaptation. There's There's another problem, Chatty, which kind of leads me back to the area of interest that I'm in because I'm into lipids. If you're fat adapted, you're really, you're really not so much on a keto diet as much as you are on a fatty acid diet. <laughs> so if you're powered more by fatty acids, I know it's, it's sizzling to talk about keto and ketones because your fatty acids are being to some degree broken down and uh, turned into ketones because they can cross the blood brain barrier which you're going to need because if you're powered less by glucose, your brain needs to then be powered more by something else that can cross that barrier and ketones allow for that. However, that's still a fraction of the total. The, the vast majority of your tissues, or I should say the vast majority of use for the substrates that are um, being used throughout your body are in fact fatty acids and not ketones, even if it's a mix of both. It's more fatty acids. And for that matter, I'm very interested in, for example, triglycerides coming off of lipoproteins. So it's being more powered by the fat side of the ledger and a little less on the glucose side of the ledger. 
And if you're if you're in a state of ketosis, it helps that you can see the breakdown into those ketones because even if that isn't the majority that you're getting powered by, the fact that you can actually get a detectable level does signal that there is a lot more usage and that you probably are fat adapted. Your interest in this stemmed from the fact that you went into a keto diet and you started seeing all of these lipid changes and that's why you became very interested in lipids. Take us through when you started, how long it took you to notice these, what are the changes that you notice? And then after you noticed them, I recall from prior podcasts I taped with you, you decided to investigate that further with some research study and things like that. But I want to set the stage for listeners as to how this all started. Sure. So going back to 2015, I had gotten an A1C of 6.1 for the second year in a row. And knowing that my dad's side of the family is rampant with type 2 diabetes and that they usually get it diagnosed you know, a couple of decades from when I was first seeing my A1C go to 6.1 and that that's technically pre-diabetic, I was like, okay, well, I need to avoid this. And so I started to look into all kinds of resources as to how it is to stop or prevent diabetes. And at that time, the diabetic forums were talking about LCHF, low carb, high fat. Keto wasn't quite big yet in 2015, but low carb, high fat sounded great. I mean, I can just have all the meat and saturated fat I wanted to consume. Sounded sound fantastic. And a lot of what people were reporting in those forums suggested that indeed they were preventing or even reversing their diabetes. And I remember then saying, but wait a sec, if I'm consuming all this cholesterol, does that mean my cholesterol is going to go high and will I get a heart attack? And at that time, people were saying, uh, some people see their cholesterol go up, but it's hardly anything and it's very rare. So I go on the diet and about a month into the diet, my dad and my sister get inspired, they start doing it with me. So all three of us are doing it. And then six months later, they're getting their routine blood work. And I told them, just so you know, it's a possibility your cholesterol might go higher. I want to know if that happens. And for both of them, it didn't happen. But then for me, who happened to get mine more at around seven months, my cholesterol had shot through the roof. That that snapped for me because at that moment I was like, wait, this this can't be genetic. I would expect my two first degree relatives to have seen this change themselves. And that's what got me into thinking about, you know, as an engineer, is this mechanistic? Is there actually a mechanistic component as to why mine would change and not a genetic one differently than theirs? And beyond total and LDL cholesterol going up, I was fascinated to see that my HDL cholesterol, the so-called good cholesterol, had gone up substantially more than my dad and my sister as well. That was very interesting to me. But I was a little more metabolically healthy than they were. In fact, I was training. I was uh, training at running at the time. And so I then started to do experiments and became kind of, that was what I sort of first became known for is I would do these very controlled end of one experiments. And I kept getting more and more obsessed with controlling all those other factors. We mentioned earlier in the podcast, you know, how much can these other things outside of diet affect what these outcomes are? And in the case of the experiments, I got more and more controlled at doing it. I wanted to eat at certain times for each of the experiments. I wanted to control for the amount of exercise I would get because I found that that could also have an impact on lipids. And as I mentioned 
just a moment ago, I started realizing it's not just about the ketones and it's not just about the testing for the ketones. It's about understanding how these fatty acids are getting moved through the bloodstream. And that's what the model that we're published on is discussing is I believe that those fatty acids that are getting moved in lipoproteins, these complexes that carry lots of fats are ride sharing with cholesterol. So cholesterol is kind of like a tracer in that it's moving around with the fatty acids I'm powered by, especially when I'm metabolically healthy. And although those fatty acids are getting predominantly dropped off into my tissues, the remodeled vehicle they came in, in the bloodstream has more cholesterol. And that's what started this, this obsession. That's, that's those initial experiments, my going on keto, my having those comparison with my two first degree relatives. And then on top of that, just already being kind of an engineer who gets obsessed with these things, it all just kind of coalesced together to make this happen for me. So, but what did you seek to investigate? You you saw this, you saw these changes, you did these experiments, we're seeing the LDL going up, the HDL going up, you're trying to understand what's going on with the cholesterol and these molecules. Then at some point you said, you said, I need to study that further. And I recall you, you did argue that the elevated LDL in these situations, we don't know if it has any issues cardiac wise. And you had a lot of pushback in your conversations with other folks that, well, you should be on statins. Why not? And, and this goes on and on. But I guess the two questions I have, number one, when you notice the LDL going up, how did you become comfortable that it might not have any cardiac issues? Uh, uh, and uh, number two is what experiments did you design to do so you could at least get to the answers that you were, you were after? Well, yes. So first things first, of course, I've never yet fully reached the comfort level that it doesn't have any cardiac issues, which is what's like further led to more and more of this study. But as far as why I think that there could be higher association of LDL with cardiovascular disease in such a predictable manner with the prior research, I kept seeing the commonality of dysfunctional lipid metabolism. So we have this metabolism that's moving around these lipids, but when we have some sort of dysfunction, as you see with, for example, um, metabolic syndrome, you have what seems to be a breakdown in the system that has lots of different downstream effects. And a commonality of those downstream effects are a low HDL cholesterol and a high triglycerides. So that was one of my first threads to pull as I kept thinking, wait a sec, We've never really had this before. We've never really had a group of people that, like me, have this triad, these three things in common, where they don't just have a high LDL cholesterol, but they also have this high HDL cholesterol and low triglycerides. Those, those three together were actually extremely rare at these extremes. So at that point, that was the, that was the first thing I started going online asking lipidologists about it. I was like, are there any studies on folks who have high LDL, but for which also have this high HDL, low triglycerides? Because the first one, the high LDL, that's associated with cardiovascular disease risk. The high HDL, low triglycerides, they're, they're not typically, it's the opposite. But usually when you're looking at metabolic syndrome, you'll find that 
the LDL will associate get higher and higher typically as HDL goes lower and lower and as triglycerides go higher and higher. This, this associates, to get geeky for a moment, this associates with um, adipocyte hypertrophy or large, large fat cells, if you will, and, and a lot of other inflammatory markers. So rightly, a lot of lipidologists would say, look, we just, we don't really have a lot of research on that. We just know that if you take action to lower LDL, if you take action to lower ApoB, you tend to see an association of a drop in cardiovascular disease outcomes. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's a good enough reason to take seriously higher LDL and higher ApoB. And as I've said to you probably many times before, Chatty, I don't dispute whether or not that can be true. I just think that it's worth studying it to find out because we've never been able to isolate this variable before. And the thing is, I kept initially engaging with these folks, including our, our good friend, Ethan Weiss, thinking that it was going to be more of a handoff. Like I would kind of get the ball rolling enough and that this phenotype like me that have this triad would become of interest enough that they could they could start studying people who this is their living is being lipidologists. But more and more, I realized it just, it was going to take a little bit more work and a little bit more work. And now here I am at the other end of the, well, I think, the eight I, years. I, and yeah. I think the, I think the, the pushback maybe is uh, so, so for listeners, the triad is high LDL, which is the bad cholesterol, high HDL, which is the good cholesterol and low triglycerides, which we all like it, I guess. And I think the pushback sometimes from the cardiologist is what's the big deal of taking a statin when you have a high LDL in these scenarios? Statins are safe. They're easy to take. There's a lot of safety around them. I think that's where the missing link. Uh, um, and they feel that, um, that when you ask these questions, you are disputing the safety of medications that have been proven to be safe over the years. Yeah, and this is, as you know, I kind of feel like it's a, a horse and cart thing. The horse is, hey, is high LDL truly pathogenic in this context? In the context of where it seems to be a part of metabolism, which again is a hypothesis, we don't know for sure. Can we confirm that it indeed is putting folks at a higher risk? And if that is the case, then we can have the discussion on actions to take pharmacologically to bring it down, because now we will have confirmed the lipid hypothesis that it's pathogenic, full stop. But this is where I have to be kind of like a real engineer. Real engineers, you know, if all we've ever known is that when cars tend to be louder, they tend to be broken cars. And so that's being that that's the only association we have is louder sounds, as you know, louder sounding cars tend to be broken cars. And now we have this new fleet of cars which they have louder engines at the start, but they otherwise don't have a lot of things in common with those broken cars. Yeah. The engineer in me is like, hey, why don't we just study these cars that are louder? It's actually a good thing. Now we can see how much sound is associated with how broken the car is. Maybe it is in fact that they just have more cylinders. Maybe they just have a different engine. It's possible, right? Why don't we just study them? Because there already are a number of people who are turning down pharmacological changes Let's go ahead and just capture them. Get get scans at the beginning. Get scans a little bit later. See what the data show. 
And it's interesting analogy about the cars. I that, that's interesting. So, wh- how did you design the study? When did the study start? Um, if my memory serves me right, it's been over a year. But to take us through the study that you designed, and how did you get funding to the study? Yeah, I, I mean, effectively, I was trying to get the study going since all the way back to 2017. From from 2017 to 2019. I was knocking on doors and trying to see if I could get funding through the typical means. And at that time, and I think this is still true to to this day, to get a decently sized funded study in something like lipidology, you're either going to get the money from uh, pharma, which was uh, I always knew was probably an untenable shot, or like the NIH. And the NIH going for public money the downside is that there uh, likely would be some pushback there, and it's an extremely long process. It's actually very lengthy to write a grant and go through all that. And so I thought maybe there would be some lipidologist that would already have some funding, and I could at least get some kind of pilot study going or something. And eventually, I just I gave up. I was like, I can't seem to get enough interest from those people who even study this for a living to look at this group. And I decided in 2019 to literally form a public charity is extremely expensive and time consuming, but I put it together as an entity to then go ahead and raise money on behalf of a would-be study. And that's what I did. And and on a Houston stage, I just, I told everyone, please give me at least 50,000, but hopefully 200,000. If my loose math is correct, that'd be about $2,000 per participant. And what we're wanting to do for each of these lean mass hyperresponders, which is the name of the phenotype uh, that have extremely high LDL, high HDL, low triglycerides, is we want to get what's known as a CT angiogram. CT angiogram is a, uh, it's probably the most advanced non-invasive scan. You get a contrast dye and it gets the geography of the heart, or I should say of the coronary arteries um, with uh, both uh, calcified and non-calcified plaque. And we hadn't even fully fleshed out, you know, what research center we would go with. I didn't even call it at that time a study because I wanted to be mindful to play by the rules of anticipating uh, getting connected with an IRB. So I even called it a measurement project coming up until that point. But eventually we engaged with the Lundquist Institute. That was a lengthy process of involvement. COVID came around, (laughs) slowed things down even more. The IRB process took like eight, nine months, but we finally broke ground uh, in October of 2021, memory serves. We were supposed to have a six-month recruitment period. It ended up being over a year, but we finally got the magic number for me, which was 100 participants, and we got them all scanned. In February, we completed our first year. So now all of them will be getting a second scan one year from whenever they got their first scan so that we can have both those scans to compare their existing plaque development um, from year from day zero to day 365-ish. So that's February, 2023? Yep. So they already finished all of their first scan and then a year later they get a second one, uh, which is the CT angiogram, that's what you're referring to. Uh, and then after that, there's no third one. No, there's no, well, there's no third one, asterisk. It may be that we actually get some extended funding so that we can do uh, an additional CT angiogram. Or no. 
And, and these folks are all maintaining low carb keto diet uh, as they are going on, and they're just having their normal lives, right? I mean, there's no, nothing, no, no other behavioral modifications to their lives. That's correct. It's a natural history study, I think, is what it's called, something along those lines. They, we are getting keto mojo measurements each day to confirm that they are close to in ketosis. Okay. And, and, and yeah, and and you're, uh, yeah, I was going to say you're getting the the keto measurements, but you're getting also you're checking their cholesterol level periodically to look at the LDL, HDL. We we get it in the initial. Right, uh, the initial uh, workup, and then again at the second visit. Yes. Uh, are there any results you're able to share with listeners from the initial scans, or none of this is published and uh, available for public consumption yet? Well, I was cleared to share some of the major aggregates. Bear in mind that I, as the funder, appropriately am fairly blinded, so I'm not able to. I'm not able to really see much more than just the general aggregates. Uh, but yes, I have these in front of me right now. So for example, these are all the mean averages, the average age of our participants at the time of the CTA is 55.3, which I was very happy about. My, my big fear chatty was that we were going to end up with a lot of young participants. Not that I predicted that, but if we did, it would have made it less likely that there was plaque at baseline. Uh, 60% are male, which again is another 55-year-old 50, males are just more likely to have plaque at baseline. That's what the data typically shows. Body mass index, unsurprisingly, is 22.2% or 22.2. All thin. Yeah. And again, this would have been predicted. It was not a it was not a requirement. It was not an eligibility requirement. But this profile, it's why I initially named it lean mass. Uh, and this is probably one of my favorite aspects, Chatty, is the eligibility was you need to be at least two years on this diet. And we had an average of 4.4 years. Wow. So 4.4 years on this diet and at these lipid levels. So risk factors, by definition, all of them have one risk factor, which is hypercholesterolemia. But 31 of the 100 have a family history, reported family history of heart disease. So that's like actually quite a bit. For past smoking, we had three. I think that's light though. Probably people have had 100 or less cigarettes. Two uh, report hypertension and one with chest pain. I don't know the full details on that. I'd have to find out from Dr. Budoff. Those may have been reported during the initial workup because I believe those were eligibility criteria, but I'm not sure. Diabetes, hypertension? Uh, no, no. If you had any prior diagnosis of a cardiovascular risk factor, that was uh, an exclusion. I don't know the full list, but we had, for example, anybody with systolic blood pressure above 135, diastolic above 80, you know, typical Mayo criteria for metabolic syndrome. So the only risk factor is obviously hypercholesterolemia and the tobacco use uh, that you mentioned for some patients. For Yes, for some patients. For some patients. Uh, now for the interesting part, total cholesterol, average total cholesterol was 364.5. Mm -hmm. And 
average LDL 259.8. So this is, this is, so think about this. Yeah, yeah. 55, age 55, 60% male, and an LDL cholesterol for those 4.4 years at around 260. HDL of 88 and triglycerides of 69. So well in this triad that I'm describing. Bear in mind that all three of those, an LDL of 260, an HDL of 88, or triglycerides of 69, those are all three of those individually are very rare. You as a doctor, I'll bet you rarely see any of these three. Mm-hmm. And yet that's commonplace together in a combination. That's why I think that lean mass hyperresponders, and I know I say this all the time, but I think they're going to teach us a lot of interesting new things with the data they'll provide. So let's play this out a little bit just for the sake of assumptions. Let's assume that there's obviously a percent of these 100 patients that have plaques that are formed. Um you know, what What would be the conclusion of this? I guess, what is the a priori hypothesis of this study? Um, it, it, you know, the, obviously you're studying this. Let's say you see no one that has atherosclerosis versus folks, you know, 20% of atherosclerosis. Like how, how what, what, what is, what are the assumptions uh, so you can at least make sense of the conclusions? Let me put a pin in that because I wasn't, I do have some outcome data that I can share loosely. The first is I wasn't able to share the stratification of the CAC of coronary artery calcification. But as you know, that comes with the CT angiogram. In fact, that's the first pass. Mm -hmm. You get a first pass and you see what it looks like. We do have some folks with advanced calcification. But as is currently the case, if you were to randomly gather a bunch of people, even at a zero risk factor stratification, you're going to have a number of people with an advanced calcification who are, are entirely asymptomatic. They not even, they may not even know. That's just chance, particularly at this age. So that was one of the things I was able to share when I announced this data is that the CAC score at baseline for our participants, the distribution is comparable to a zero risk factor group. So while I couldn't give the exact numbers, I can say that we do have some folks who do have, uh, for example, calcification above 300, a score above 300, for example. I think we have maybe three or four, I don't know. But but, But but the the outcome of the study is going to prove what? It's going to prove either that these folks have no additional sclerosis in the coronary arteries, and this means that there's nothing that we need to do medically or pharmacologically, or that they have something that evolves over time, which means pharmacologic intervention is advisable. Are these the two uh, possibilities? Are are these what we're trying to differentiate between? I I would say that the, the key hypothesis I've always been interested in, most of all, even in raising the money for this, is at a population level, Mm -hmm. do we see a rapid progression of plaque development comparable to the average population? So given the extremely high LDL, the expectation per the existing lipid hypothesis is even if they have no other risk factors, just like with homozygous FH children, we should presumably see a clear and distinct signal of 
rapid progression of plaque at a population level. The reason I keep saying at a population level is, as you know, it's not going to be enough to find some people who don't have any plaque and don't see any that present. It's not enough to find some who do. It's whether or not at a population, the the mean average of this group is comparable to the mean average of folks at large. But I'm thinking beyond that. Like, Do you think this study is going to prove that cardiologists or primary care physicians could avoid the use of statins in this in similar patients that uh, present to them uh, in similar patients to the ones that you're studying i am afraid to answer that question because not being a medical professional myself i potentially make it more difficult for my research partners who are medical professionals who would likely have opinions that are more informed on the pharmacological intervention. Do do I think, setting aside statins, do I think this will have an impact on people's decision-making on whether to lower their LDL? I think they will. It's going to have it on myself, for sure. Like, I'm very interested. If I saw that there... let's Let's start with... Do I think if there was a rapid progression of plaque comparable to people with FH, do I think there would be a lot of people in the low-carb community who right now are LDL skeptics who would go, oh, you know what? Uh, Never mind. I do want to take steps to lower my LDL, whether it was through statins or not. I do. Conversely, are there some folks who are sitting on the fence who go, you know, I don't know if it's very rapid. Oh, at a population level, it isn't? Ah. Uh, you know, maybe I'm not going to take the same steps that I thought, given what was understood before. But don't be surprised if there's also some amount of inconsistencies that we may still be exploring. For example, maybe at a population level, it's not a rapid progression, but maybe we have a handful, let's say three or four, that pop out because they have a high progression. And because of our genetic testing, we find out that there's some specific genetic interactions that help isolate and identify why that happened with those folks. I'm just throwing that out as a possibility. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is the key thing to keep coming back around to, and that I keep trying to hold the feet, the everybody's feet to the fire on, which is the present expectation. When somebody who's a lean mass hyperspotter is walking to their doctor's office and they have an LDL of 300, the present expectation, understandably, is the doctor's going to say, you are a high-risk patient. There's just no question. You cannot be walking around with this LDL of 300. You're at a high risk because we just don't have population data on them. And that's what the present lipid hypothesis would expect. That's what the existing guidelines will say right now is if you're at 190 or higher, without any other consideration, you should take steps to lower your LDL. You know, in the last maybe five to 10 minutes, Dave, what has been the feedback or the pushback or the reaction uh, from folks who knew about the study? Uh, I know not everybody is in favor of this study, obviously, and some have called your study as controversial research. There are some that have gone even beyond that, and they actually accused you that this research is quote-unquote unethical. I don't hold that view, obviously. Otherwise, I wouldn't have you on my podcast. But you've heard it, and we've heard it. So I'd like you to respond to folks who have been very critical of this research, and some of them have gone really um, the extra mile to to say that you should not be doing this research. You know, I'm going to go the uh, the extra mile, and 
continue to emphasize that I think the vast majority of, of my critics are well-intentioned. They're concerned that certain things, even if I'm trying to say it in a nuanced way or research as it's being developed, could be misused and that there may be high-risk patients that could uh, find harm by um, not having the best interpretation for what the data really show. But that said, I feel that that's while I can, while we can recognize this and be compassionate towards it, I feel that that's not at all a good enough reason to avoid actually getting the answers. We should just study this population because it's not just whether or not they could be at higher risk. It's whether or not we may come to bigger discoveries. But a more meaningful thing that I really want everyone to keep in mind, not just those folks, but everybody, gets back to what I was talking about earlier in the podcast, which is I'm in regular contact chatting with folks who really do have severe medical conditions such as intensive epilepsy to where carbs might as well be a peanut allergy. They really do need to stay extremely low carb. And as a result of that, they can have the highest levels of LDL. They deserve those answers because again, those folks who just don't care what their LDL levels are, who weren't trusting these organizations in the first place or the guidelines, that's not really truly what this research is for because it wasn't likely going to have that much impact on their behavior. But for those folks who do have these, that that narrow group of people really do have extremely high levels of LDL and are genuinely concerned that it's putting their health at risk, they're the ones science should be providing those answers for. So I hope we can all come together at least in recognizing why that's so important for us to do. And your study was reviewed by the IRB. I mean, I mean, IRBs are obviously uh, tasked by human subject protection and making sure that the studies are obviously appropriate and the conduct is ethical and all of that uh, nature. Is there anything else I should have asked you pertaining to the study, to the keto, what you're doing that you really think I completely missed or listeners and viewers should really know about? I, I know I'm going to have to bring you back next year again when the results are out and hopefully they're published and presented. But anything that uh, we should be looking out uh, over the next year. And also I have to have, I have a rapid uh, questions for you after this, right? because you, I, I'm not going to tell you I'm going to ask, but go ahead first. Yeah. I mean, look, I, I do think there's a story around the story. It is, it is a bit odd. I'm sure you would agree that I'm the one doing this. <laughs> As I said, I I would have I would have hoped that there would be enough interest in the field that so carefully studies lipids, such that you know this wasn't the only study that's being conducted. It still is. It's the only study that I'm aware of. But you have physicians with you doing the study, no? I mean, you have physicians and um, sure, yeah, sure. But I I mean, it's it's there's a. <laughs> It's a, it's a it's a drive, like I I wish that there were ten of these. I wish there were a hundred of these that were going at the same time. And so I think a bigger story is I don't I don't want to be suggestive that this is in any way conspiratorial, but I do think that there may need to be some changes in the culture of our interest toward discovery that I wish there was more um, attraction towards disruption of underlying paradigms if they turn out to not be correct. Like we should be excited for that possibility that something could really upend things we thought were true all along. 
And that's what that's what I think, you know, I'm I'm working on a book and I don't know when it'll get done, but it's but I discussed this to some degree at length because coming from the outside and coming from engineering, I mean our world is full. It's full of things that are getting torn down left and right over and over again. You you have to innovate to survive. And I wish that there was just a bit more of that in um, in this world, and particularly in the field of lipidology. Well, we're going to bring you back about the book, but don't start working on it until you finish reading Toxic Exposure, Dave. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Because, I mean, the rumor has it that you like that book. Toxic. I'm excited for it. Yeah, good. No, I was talking about Toxic Exposure now. Uh, so can I have French fries every so often? <laughs> yeah. Again, it, it's it's up to how well you metabolize it. I I will say French fries is a problem food for me. I can't eat it because it'd be like an alcoholic drinking. It's just, it's too much. How about ice cream and dessert? Yeah. Again, if you can metabolize it well, I know people who I've seen their blood work and they're, they're thriving just fine. Granted, they usually have an, a good exercise regime and they have a good balanced lifestyle. I think they're all possible. I've discovered dry fruits lately and I'm just completely hooked on dry mango. I don't know much about dry mango, but... Hey, if I like it, just have it. Uh, Dave, uh, last thoughts before I let you go. I'm very grateful for you coming on the show, but any final comments, anything else you'd like to tell our listeners? No, I will say this though, Chatty. I really enjoy your style. I enjoy your podcast. I I occasionally check in uh, when I can, when I'm on like a long drive, I'll occasionally throw on something. And I just, I really have to thank you for keeping really good content alive and being the good interviewer that you are. So I just I just wanted to let you know that it's fun to come on because in many ways, listening to your voice has always been uh, something I enjoy, whether being passively uh, in my car or actually having this conversation with you now. You're very kind. Thank you so much. Dave Feldman on Healthcare Unfiltered. Thank you so much. And I look forward to having you again and looking at the results of your studies. Thanks for having me, Chad. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I appreciate being on uh, your loyalty, being on the podcast. And thanks to Dave Feldman for coming on Healthcare Unfiltered. I know that these questions are never easy, but he always is calm, cool, and collected and answers all of these questions in an easy-to-understand manner. Uh, don't forget to let me know what you think about this podcast and other podcasts. And if you have quick two seconds, just simply hit the subscribe button rate, write a brief review. You can watch, by the way, all of these podcast episodes on my YouTube channel, Chadi Nabhan and Healthcare Unfiltered. Don't forget to let your friends and colleagues know about this podcast. For that, I am forever grateful. Before I let you go, I'm going to leave you with a saying by Winston Churchill. We make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. Until next time, take care.